0: Yes, friends, welcome back to the Transcend Human podcast. It is great to be with you one last time for Transcending Eschatology. So what is it today? October 2nd, 2023. So like I said, welcome back to our series on eschatology or the study of end time events. This is it, friends. This is the final episode. Um, So let's just walk through really quickly. I know we don't do this every time, but let's walk through where we've been. Episode one was called The Doomsday Clock, where we basically discussed our social and cultural beliefs about the end of time. Episode two, called The Flip Side, we dove into end time beliefs that are based on spiritual or religious belief systems. So we looked at some of the major world religions and what they believe about the end of time. Episode three, Carrying the Torch, we talked about the history and the origins of Christian eschatology and how it can literally be traced all the way back to Adam and Eve. Episode 4, Choosing Sides, we discuss the high-level categories that most Christians fall into when it comes to beliefs in eschatology. Episode 5, Making It Plain, we really jumped into some Bible passages that just talk about the end of time in plain old language that's easy for us to understand. Episode 6, called The Left Bookend, We moved into the adult pool and we walked through seven stories in the book of Daniel. And we walked through the first piece of apocalyptic prophecy. Episode seven, expanding on the statue, we looked at Daniel's second and third dreams and how they simply build upon the first one. We also introduced prophetic math and we discussed the 1260 day prophecy and the 2300 day prophecy. Episode seven, Daniel's 70 weeks. We looked at Daniel's dream in chapters 9 and 10. We refer to this as the 70 weeks prophecy and it is a very important one, not just because of the information presented, but because of the various interpretations that we see coming out of it. Episode 9, Daniel's final vision. We looked at all the ways that Daniel's visions are connected and how they grow in complexity over time. We also discussed all relevant time periods discussed in the book of Daniel. Episode 10, we move to the right bookend and the seven churches. So we talked about the right bookend, which is the book of Revelation and the prologue and the first set of seven, which is the letters to the seven churches. Episode 11, more sets of seven. So we discussed the next two sets of seven, the seven seals and the seven trumpets. Episode 12, the coming global crisis and a final warning we discussed Revelation 13 and 14, the sea beast, the land beast, and the three angels' messages. And then last time, episode 13, called The Final Set of Seven and the Prostitute, where we looked at the seven last plagues, and we described how this illustration of a prostitute basically describes the church gone wrong at the end of time. But today, we discuss the climactic ending. So today's topic, The Climactic Ending, Chapter 1, The Rider on the White Horse, Chapter 2, Heaven and the Millennium, and Chapter 3, The Final Judgment and the New Earth. Chapter 1, The Rider on the White Horse. So in the last two episodes, we we really turned the corner and we headed toward the finish line. After looking at numerous prophecies, visions, dreams about historical events, dates, times, civilizations, kings, powers, people periods of time, all of those types of things. We finally hit the point where we are looking forward. Looking forward is the goal. Now I know there have been teasers along the way. So it all started with Daniel 12, right? The dream about the huge statue for Daniel. It was all in the future because the head of gold stood for Babylon, the very civilization he was living in. But for us reading Daniel two, it's like 80% past and 20% future, right? So you have Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, Rome splitting into 10 kingdoms, and then this final kingdom, which is a rock cut out of a mountain that smashes all of the other uh, kingdoms. So we're probably living somewhere in the fifth civilization, right? The one where Rome has been split up into 10 kingdoms. Obviously it happened in the past, But if it continues until the end of time, then we're somewhere there in the middle of all that. And obviously, God's kingdom has not arrived yet. And this is how most of the prophecies in Daniel worked, right? There was a bunch of information about the past, and then there was a little taste of what's coming in the future. Then, when we get to Revelation, mostly the same thing, if you interpret Revelation as historicists do. So the letters to the seven churches, for example, if you interpret these to be blocks of time since the death of Jesus, six are in the past, and we're living in the seventh, right? That final church age. And there's a very small piece of that last church age that is talking about the future. But when we move from the seven trumpets into Revelation 13, that's when things really changed, right? from there on, it's pretty much all future. We learned about the beast from the sea. We learned about the beast from the land. And while we're given some historical information in order to identify who these powers are, that history really isn't the point. The point is how these two powers come together at the end of time to force the entire world to turn from God and worship Satan. Now, We learned about things like the 144,000, the three angels messages, and really a final harvesting of the earth. Then we learned about the seven last plagues, all of which are coming in the future, right? We learned about the prostitute or the church at the end of time that will be preaching and teaching things that go against all of the things that God wants us to do as humans. And then we got a little spoiler in chapter 18 when the end was revealed. This idea that the world would ultimately turn against the prostitute and the great city of Babylon and it would fall, but not at the hands of people. It would fall because God returns to earth and sets up his eternal kingdom. So today, that's really where we're picking up the story. So we ended last time with Babylon falling. And today, It's the cry of victory in chapter 19. John is shown this amazing event, right? He hears a vast crowd in heaven shouting things like, God is just in his judgment. He punished the great prostitute. He avenged those who were murdered for his name. He will reign forever. He is setting the table for a feast. He sees the 24 elders and the four living beasts falling down and worshiping God as well. And in that moment, John saw the sky split open and he saw a rider on a white horse and the rider of the horse had a name. This name was faithful and true for the war that he waged was a righteous war and he judged fairly. His eyes were like flames of fire on his head were many crowns and name was written on him that no one could understand except him. His robe was dipped in blood And his title was the Word of God. All of the armies of heaven followed him, and a sharp sword came from his mouth to strike down the nations of the world. And on his thigh was another title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. The rider of the white horse and all the armies of heaven fought against the beast, the false prophet, and their armies, and threw all of them into a lake of burning sulfur. The end. Chapter two, heaven and the millennium. So an interesting thing happens again when we get to this point in the story. So we haven't talked much about futurists in quite a while because they literally believe that everything from Revelation four on takes place in this little window of time that we're talking about right now, a seven year period of time right before Jesus returns. In other words, everything contained in the seven letters, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and all the information on the beasts, the seven last plagues, the prostitute, Babylon, the 144,000, the two witnesses. Everything happens in this small little window of time down at the end. And what kicks it all off? This little thing called the rapture. So the rapture is the futurist belief that all of God's people will suddenly vanish from the earth at some point in time. This is a concept made popular by Lahey and Jenkins in their Left Behind series, which were books and eventually became movies. And there was even an HBO TV series called The Leftovers that the entire premise was that these are people left over after the rapture. Now, the teaching is that this miraculous event is tied directly to world events centered around a Zionist view of Israel that God still views Israel as his one true people and that global events will happen at the end of time because of this fact, when the rapture happens, God's people will be removed so that they won't have to face the difficult times ahead. For three and a half years, the world will actually seem to get better, right? Um, powers will align, things will start to heat up, but it'll all look like it's headed in the right direction. Then at the end of the three and a half years, a covenant will be made, which literally blows everything up. And for the next three and a half years, the Antichrist figure will basically run the world with an iron fist. And at the end of those three and a half years, seven years in total, the seven cut off from the 70 weeks prophecy we talked about in Daniel, then the end will come. Jesus will return and he will set everything right. Now, this is the point in the story, the point where Jesus returns, where most interpretations start to agree. Now, preterists are split into two camps. There are partial preterists, and these people teach that all prophecy ended with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, except for this one little piece, right? The second coming of Jesus and the final judgment. But then there are actually full preterists, A full preterist teaches that all prophecy ended with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, period. There is no second coming. There is no final judgment. Everything that was going to happen on earth happened at that time. Now, futurists and historicists are much closer, right? They both kind of view the second coming and the final judgment in a similar way. And like we've said before, there is no need to discuss the idealist interpretation because there is no interpretation. The idealist views all apocalyptic prophecy as art, as literature, literary masterpieces based on a genre of writing that existed at that time, similar to our apocalyptic movie genre of today. Fun to read, fun to watch, but entertainment at best. meant to give you a good feeling as you watch the potential destruction of our entire world thwarted by the hero. Now, small caveat here. One thing I've mentioned before, but I feel like it's worth repeating, is the fact that not all interpretations of prophecy are equal, at least in my book. If you research when each started and how they came to exist, you start to see a bigger picture. We've talked about historicism right? Being one of the oldest and most agreed upon explanations of Bible prophecy, going all the way back to 300 AD with obvious revisions in thought along the way, right? There was the great disappointment of 1844, which led to a renewed level of interest and understanding after that. But at the end of the day, it's been the dominant strand for a very long time. But the same cannot be said for the other two, preterism and futurism. So, Preterism started a little before Futurism, Um, but a book on full Preterism wasn't even written until 1845. And just as a side note, the author of this book at some point actually recanted his entire book. Futurism, which I believe we've talked about, is based largely on dispensationalism, which is a concept that began to take root back in the mid to late 1800s as well. So the point here is that dispensationalism or a futurist view of prophecy and a preterist view of prophecy didn't even really take off until the end of the Dark Ages. Many believe that these were interpretations created in direct opposition to historicism, to the historicist point of view. Why? Because historicists were coming to the point where they were reading the Catholic church into prophecy more and more of the historicist interpretations included the Catholic church or the Pope or the papacy as being identified as the little horn from Daniel, the beast from the sea, um, things like that. And the 1260 year prophecy or period of time as the dark ages perpetrated by the Pope and the Catholic church. Now, The Catholic Church was extremely powerful in those days, right? And there were many theologians who were loyal to her teachings, loyal enough to create new interpretations of Bible prophecy in order to take the heat off of the one true church. Possibly, right? As we know, the church lost most of its political power in 1798. But prophecy tells us that the deadly wound will be healed. And it's no secret that the Catholic church has made a religious resurgence in the world. It is one, if not the most powerful religious organizations in the world today with one man in control. And this man, the Pope is viewed as God on earth with its own sovereign land, its own sovereign city, the Vatican. And as time goes on, it's gaining more and more political power as well slowly returning to the power that it had during the dark ages. Don't believe me? Here's one sign, the Supreme Court of the United States of America. Here is a statement from Marcy Hamilton and Leslie Griffin uh, in an article from a website called Verdict Justia in May of this year. It says, the current court has six Catholics in the majority, Chief Justice Roberts and the Justices Thomas Alito Gersich, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. Plus, there is a liberal Catholic, Justice Sotomayor, a Jew, Justice Kagan, and a Protestant, Justice Ketanji Brown. Few people have questioned why the Supreme Court does not reflect the religious diversity of the population of the United States. We all should wonder why it happened without much opposition from this diverse United States starting to see the trend? Okay, like I said, that was a caveat, a tangent at best, but important in understanding where some of the diversity of thought may have come from. New interpretations meant to distract and confuse people from this growing belief that the papacy is front and center in the long accepted historicist view of Bible prophecy. So anyways, back to the episode. We left off discussing how most of us agree on the second coming. But the minute we start to agree on something, another issue comes up that'll cause division. And that thing, my friends, is the millennium and how we interpret it. So we opened this conversation in episode four, when we talked about it as an identifying factor in how different groups of people interpret prophecy. So these are the three that rise to the surface. There is pre-millennium, pre-millennialism, and you can either be classic or dispensational if you're pre-millennial. There's post-millennial, and then there's amillennial. Let's do amillennial first, just to get it out of the way. So amillennialism is the belief that there is no such thing as a millennium in Bible prophecy. There is no such thing as a 1,000-year period of time. We're simply waiting for Jesus to return. And when he does, believers will go to heaven with him. Non-believers will be judged and sent to eternal condemnation, whatever that means. Post-millennialism is this idea that the 1,000 years will be before the second coming of Jesus. So at some point in time, and we won't fully know when that happens, the millennium, or what they call the church age, will start on earth. And during this time, the church will lead the charge in making the world a better place. Some refer to this as bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth, things like that. But during this time, many people will come to know Christ and the entire world will be cleaned up, if you will, in order for Jesus to return. So that's post-millennialism. Now we'll end with premillennialism because this is probably the most, um, the most accepted view, although there are two different views of it. So let's start with the classic or the historic version of premillennialism. So this belief teaches that the millennium or a 1000 year period of time will happen right after Jesus returns. The earth is barren as the rider of the white horse and his armies completely burn it down. Those with the seal of God are taken to heaven for a thousand years. Then you have the dispensational or the futurist view of premillennialism. And they teach that the rapture will happen at some point out of the blue. Then there will be a very defined seven years of tribulation. Then Jesus will return and the 1000 years will begin at that point, but most likely right here on earth. So there you go, the differing beliefs above about the millennium. As I've said before, I lean historicist. And in this case, I lean classic premillennial historicist. For me, it's largely based on the book of Revelation, in order, right? And trusting that it was written that way to suggest how and when things should happen. I don't believe the book is trying to fool people or that it's written out of order on purpose so that we have to figure out how to arrange it or rearrange it to make sense. I believe it's there for a reason. <clears throat> and in this case, this is the order that it suggests to me. Revelation 13, the world starts to spiral. The Catholic Church in the United States form some sort of unholy alliance, resurrecting the papacy of the Dark Ages. And this power is once again, religious and political, forcing people to make final eternal decisions by either taking the mark of the beast, which is a sign that you are basically offering your allegiance to the one world government, or you receive the seal of God, the sign that you have chosen God over the one one world government and what it's asking you to do. Then you have revelation 14, which is the three angels messages basically warning us about this choice and how important it's going to be. Next, Revelation 15 to 16, once everyone has made his or her decision, the seven last plagues will fall on the earth. Now, we discussed the whole concept of the close of probation, that at some point the temple in heaven shuts down because all decisions have been made. This allows the plagues to only fall on one group of people, right? The people who took the mark of the beast. Revelation 17 to 18 describes the way this one-world government works and how it will not only be successful, but then ultimately fall. Revelation 19 describes the victory celebration as Jesus returns and ends the rule of the one-world government. Revelation 20 explains that when this happens, a period of 1,000 years will occur, and during this time period, some very important things happen it says Satan is locked on earth with nobody to tempt, nobody to kill, and nobody to manipulate. However, it explains that he will be let loose in the future for a very short period of time. Next, it says that thrones were set up and people were allowed to judge. Now, obviously, we're not there judging people or people's eternal destiny because that's already been done. My understanding is that we will literally be able to judge God, or maybe not God himself, but we'll be able to judge God's judgments. We'll be able to see for ourselves that he made the right decisions. I mean, there are going to be people in heaven that shock us. How did he get in? Why is she here? And the opposite will be true, right? There will be people missing from heaven that we thought for sure would be there. Why isn't he here? What happened with her? But after we're given access to the books, we will be able to see that God simply allowed these people the freedom of choice. And ultimately, he honored those decisions. Chapter three, the final judgment and the new earth. Okay, so we've moved into our last chapter, but we haven't finished the Revelation timeline we started. So let's pick up where we left off. We talked about Revelation 20. But Revelation 20 goes on to explain then what happens after the 1,000 years. So it says that God and those who are with him in heaven will return to earth, most likely in a massive city referred to as the New Jerusalem. When we arrive, it says that Satan will be let out of his prison. And apparently, so will every other person who has ever lived on earth, raised from the dead in order to witness this final climactic conclusion to earth's story. Satan sees this massive army and his first thought isn't a good thought. His first thought is evil, of course. He once again believes that he can manipulate and use these people to help him win. So he convinces them that based on their numbers, they can take the city. We can still win. But as they advance on the new Jerusalem, God pronounces the final judgment opening the books and allowing every person to see their choices and the choices they made against him. Once everyone sees the indisputable evidence, the books are closed and God cleanses the entire earth with fire, an all-consuming fire that even takes out Satan this time. Okay, time for another station break. Before we wrap things up, and talk through the final two chapters of Revelation. Let's talk about a few things, things that many people are either confused about or they simply have never heard before. First is this whole concept of multiple judgments. Now we know this is true because we're told about two of them. The first is the investigative judgment. So this is the thing that we've been talking about, this thing that's been going on in heaven since 1844. And we'll end with the close of probation. And the second we just read about, it's called the Great White Throne Judgment, and it happens after the 1,000 years, just before Satan and his army try to take the New Jerusalem. It isn't an investigation, like the first one, to determine people's ultimate choice. It's more the sentencing phase of judgment, right? It's reading of the choices and ultimately the consequences for those choices. And then the sentence is carried out. Next is the concept of multiple deaths. Now, this is really weird, right? I mean, you die. Why would well, there's no multiple deaths? But as you read the Bible, you start to see there are multiple deaths referred to in the Bible. We know this because one of them was described here in Revelation 20, 14. It says, Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire this lake of fire is the second death. So it's pretty clear that the first death is the natural death that we all understand. Thanks to the sin virus and the human condition, we live for a while and then we die. That's the first death. But at the end of the 1000 years, if everyone is resurrected, every living being, uh, you know, from the beginning of time until the end of time, all resurrected in order for the great white throne judgment to occur, when that's complete and the lake of fire covers the earth, that is what's referred to as the second death. Next, you guessed it, there are multiple resurrections. So Jesus was resurrected on the third day after he died. There have been one-off human beings resurrected. Think about Lazarus. Think about the people who are resurrected with Jesus when he was resurrected. Um, If you don't believe me, read Matthew 27, 51 to 53. And then there are two big ones, right? The two big ones at the end, we refer to as the first resurrection and the second resurrection. The first resurrection is when Jesus returns. It says, those in the grave who chose God will be resurrected and caught up in the sky with him along with those living who chose him. And then there is this second resurrection at the end of the 1,000 years, the one we talked about where God raises every living being who has ever lived and chose against him, unfortunately, they will be resurrected so that they will be able to see the full weight of the choice that they made. Now, obviously the Bible suggests that the second resurrection and the second death are not things that we want to be part of, right? Next, we have the state of the dead. And while we could do an entire episode on this, let's just summarize it here for now. So within Christianity, there are really two views on what happens when you die. Some believe that when you die, your soul leaves your body and it goes somewhere. And the other belief is that when you die, you return to the earth and you simply sleep in the grave until Jesus returns. For me, the whole sleeping in the grave thing is the most logical because the soul leaving the body creates some really big problems. Like if a soul leaves the body and goes to hell, why would there need to be a second resurrection, a second death, and all of that if you're already existing in eternal punishment? And if a soul leaves the body and goes to heaven, Why on earth would they want to return to their old body just to be raised in the first resurrection and then to go back to heaven? And if God allows us to look over the books during the millennium, then what are these souls doing until then? If you think through it logically, death as a sleep is really the only logical explanation, given the way prophecy plays out at the end of time. And finally, we have the doctrine of hell. So some believe hell is a very real place where bad people go and it will be there forever and people will be burning in torment forever. Some people believe that hell is eternal separation from God and that the effects of the lake of fire are eternal, not the burning part. Again, the idea of souls leaving the body and an eternally burning hell both come from pagan beliefs, Greek mythology and the teachings about Hades and the underworld where the dead go. Again, if you run into these beliefs, if you run these beliefs through the filter of Bible prophecy and how things shake out at the end of time, the idea of an eternally burning hell doesn't make a lot of sense. In Revelation, it explains that the new Jerusalem comes down, Satan is loosed, the dead are raised, then you have the great white throne judgment, and once it's completed, a lake of fire happens. And what happens next? Revelation talks about the new Jerusalem coming down and planting itself on earth. And what would the point of that be if earth was a bubbling, churning mass of fire, right? If you you pay attention and read Revelation carefully, you'll see that it explains that the new Jerusalem comes down and that the earth had been reborn, so to speak, that the old heavens and earth had passed away, and the new heavens and new earth were now visible. The assumption being that creation, part two, happens once the lake of fire burns out, suggesting that the lake of fire or hell is an event. It happens and it's done, which allows God to recreate the earth As it was in the beginning. And then God adheres to, or (laughs) adheres the New Jerusalem to the earth, making it literally the center of the known universe. And then there is the telling explanation in Malachi 4 in the Old Testament, where it says, The Lord of heaven's armies says, The day of judgment is coming, burning like a furnace. On that day, the arrogant and the wicked will be burned up like straw, they will be consumed roots, branches, and all. But for you who fear my name, the Son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings, and you will go free, leaping with joy like calves led out to pasture. On that day when I act, you will tread upon the wicked as if they were dust under your feet, says the Lord of Heaven's armies. Sounds pretty legit to me that hell is not an eternal event, but an event whose result is eternal. Okay. Thanks for indulging me in that short list of very important items. Important because they all overlap on some level. People have some pretty wild and crazy beliefs about some of these things, but if you run each and every one of these through the filter of Bible prophecy, it isn't very difficult to find the right interpretations for each. Okay. That said, let's get to the good stuff. So the last two chapters of Revelation We're not going to read through each one verse for verse, um, but I want to pull out some of the amazing things that are presented within these two chapters, starting with the new Jerusalem. So when when you read chapter 21, it's a literal explanation of the entire city, the shape, the size, the metals, the gems, just a crazy explanation of the way that the new Jerusalem is going to look on earth. It says that this city is full of shiny, happy people. There's no tears. There's no pain. These things are said to be gone forever. We know that God sits on his throne within the city. Uh, The city is described as the most beautiful thing anyone has ever seen. And there's no temple. There's no church, no synagogue because God lives in the city, right? There's no longer a need for those types of things. There's no longer a need for celestial bodies like the sun, the moon, the stars, because God's light sufficiently illuminates the entire universe. It sounds to me like there will be no night, right? Which some people might view as a negative thing, but my guess is that we'll have so much energy and we'll never be tired. So why would we want to sleep, right? There won't even be a thought in our brains. And finally, evil will no longer exist. Nothing is cursed, nothing is evil, nothing is bad. And John sees all of these things and he is told, you can believe all of this. It will come to pass very soon. So John finishes by explaining, I, John, heard all of these things. I was told not to lock any of it away because the time is short. God is coming quickly and his reward is with him. Let's land the plane. Friends, we did it. We made it through and it only took us 14 episodes. (laughs) I know this was a massive departure from what we typically discuss. So apologies on that, but also a word of thanks for indulging me and allowing me to do this. In a million years, I never thought that I would be discussing my thoughts on Bible prophecy with people, much less on a public podcast for the world to hear. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a theologian. I'm just little old me. But the Bible isn't just for pastors and theologians, right? It's for all of us. God wants us to know how things will work out. He wants us to be confident that someday in the very near future, he will return to right the wrongs that have been perpetrated on this earth. Evil will be dealt with once and for all. The human condition that we talk so much about on this podcast will cease to exist someday, or at least it'll be changed into the new and improved human condition, or maybe the eternal human condition. I don't know. And transcend human will no longer be a pursuit. It'll be a reality in past tense because God helps us transcend human once and for all. That'll be the day, my friend. And I don't believe that that day is that far off. So here's what I really hoped to accomplish by doing this series. First, is to be educational. So my plan is not to hit you over the head with details coming across like, here's how it is, take it or leave it. Instead, my intention was to try and explain eschatology from the various perspectives and kind of let you decide for yourself. We've got historicist, futurist, preterist, and idealist, which turned out to be a lot harder than I thought because at the end of the day, it really comes down to two for me. Because preterism believes that all prophecy was officially fulfilled in 70 AD. So there's really no point in walking through this interpretation if there's nothing to look forward to. And then you have the idealist view of prophecy, right? That it's nothing more than literature, something to read and get good vibes from. So we didn't really need to spend much time there either. For me, the historicist and the futurist interpretations are the only two that really are worth having a conversation about. And I'm sure that became very evident as we went on, because we spent most of our time going back and forth between these two interpretations. Number two, I wanted to be transparent. In other words, I didn't want to just be educational, as if I have no skin in the game. I do have a specific set of beliefs. They definitely lean historicist. So I did want to be honest about that. And the version of historicism is even a bit more unique right? With a little Seventh-day Adventist flair thrown in there for good measure. Number three, I wanted to be positive. So many people view Bible prophecy as doom and gloom, like every other apocalyptic movie they've ever seen. Sort of like watching the movie San Andreas if you live in Orange County, California. But my hope was to talk about these bad things in a positive way, to make it a bit easier to understand, to simplify things, and to focus in on the fact that there is a massive light at the end of the tunnel, a future that we can't even imagine. I was listening to a podcast um, episode earlier this week, and the guys made this statement. They said, if your God is smaller than nature, if your God is smaller than the universe itself, you don't have the right view of God. After all, if God created the universe and we can't understand it, how much less should we know about the one who is able to create it? And for me, that's just, that's just the tip of the iceberg, right? And that's the way that I've started to view heaven or whatever it is that comes after life on this earth. If he's in charge of it, if he created it, I'm not going to understand it unless he explains it to me someday when I get there. And it's also important to understand that no matter how we view heaven, With our limited minds and our limited capacity, we're never gonna fully comprehend how amazing it's gonna be. We're gonna get there and it's gonna be a hundred times better than anything that we could ever make up in our heads. Number four, I wanted to be humble. So I need you to know that I'm not an expert on this subject, right? Just like you, I'm wading through it. I'm trying to understand as best as possible. I know it's hard. And we tend to think that we need a degree in theology just to understand it. But I don't think that's what God's asking us to do. I think he simply asks that we put in the time, that we keep an open mind, and that we learn more and more as we go. And I believe he'll meet us halfway. In our struggle to understand, I believe that he gives us the understanding that we need. So there you go, friends, transcending eschatology in the books. Um, If you're interested in more on this topic, I would highly recommend a few things. I recently started listening to the Voxology podcast with Mike Erie and Tim Stafford. Uh, These guys walk through the book of Revelation in detail. You just have to find the Revelation playlist and you can literally listen to episode after episode back to back. Um, They have interviews with some amazing people as well. Really good resource. Um, A recent book that came out this year, Revelation for the Rest of Us by Scott McKnight and Cody Matchett. Um, these guys were interviewed on the Voxology podcast, and so they kind of have a similar uh, view on the book of Revelation. Now, I'm going to be honest, I don't agree 100% with the conclusions that Mike Erie comes to, Tim Stafford, Scott McKnight, Cody Matchett. I don't believe 100% in every single one of their ideas or their conclusions. But I am completely amazed by the work that they're doing, right? They're coming at it from a place of humility and wonder. And at times I think that might be the most important piece of the puzzle, being humble and reading the Bible with a sense of awe and wonder. Another thing that I've learned about myself is that I'm no longer looking for people who believe exactly the way that I do. I'm looking for people who have done their own research and humbly are trying to understand things as best as they can. Now, I'm not going to lie. It definitely helps when I find people who are willing to call out futurism for what it is, a fad, something that literally came out of the blue, took over the mainstream evangelical landscape, and to this day is taught as the gospel truth, even though there are numerous contradictions and issues related to that interpretation. But I digress. That's for another day. And finally, there are a few resources that line up almost exactly with mine, um, things that I was probably taught as a child, um, and I've spent a fair amount of time researching in order to really determine if I want to still believe those things. Um, There's a website called Amazing Facts by Doug Batchelor, a website packed full of content. And within the website, there are some full-length prophecy seminars, There's one called Revelation Now from back in 2020. And there's actually one coming out in October of this year called Pinnacle of Prophecy. So if you're interested, you can literally jump into that one as it's being presented live. Uh, There's another series called Unlocking Bible Prophecies with Cami Utman. It's an interesting one, a really good resource if you're looking for a complete walkthrough of Bible prophecy. Um, So I'll throw all of those links in the show notes um, if you are interested in continuing your conversation with the book of Revelation. And that about does it for today, my friends, and for this series. Um, As for next week, I have absolutely no idea what's coming next. I mean, I have ideas, don't get me wrong, but I just haven't decided which direction I want to go. So, stick around, come back next week or in a couple of weeks if you're interested in figuring that out with me. Until then, everyone, have a great week, and as we always say, keep transcending human.